Hey, this is Alex Burkett, and you're listening to the Long Game Podcast. This episode is part of our Kitchen Side series, where we pull the curtain back and show you the behind-the-scenes conversations, debates, strategies, and brainstorming sessions that we have at our agency. Topic today, Red Ocean versus Blue Ocean SEO. This topic was inspired by my reading of Eli Schwartz's book, Product-Led SEO. And of course, that concept was inspired by the book Blue Ocean Strategy, which I'm convinced that no one has actually read. We cover in this conversation how to stand out in crowded, read Red Ocean, markets, how to build demand if none exists if you're in a blue ocean, and why no matter what, no matter where you are, what's important is that you find your unique strengths to index on early and to build upon over time. Without further ado, here is the Long Game Podcast. First off, I, th- I think we want to point out that none of us have read the book Blue Ocean Strategy. <laughs> I don't think I anybody's read that book. I think there's a lot of yeah. books that people have like talked about but never read. I think a lot of people like, you know, Atlas Shrugged, like that's just a common talking point, but very few people thinking, have read it. Thinking fast and slow. I got through a third of it. Had not I, I read it. that one. I read that one fully. I'm, I think I'm one of the few. Um <laughs> Anyway, I think it's one of those books that like, we know the theme of, we know the, the title, and essentially that says it all. So David, you're familiar with the high-level concept. Should we maybe talk about like what the idea is behind that book, what blue ocean theory is, blue ocean strategies are in comparison to red oceans? When I think of blue ocean strategy, my, my understanding is blue ocean is, hey, no one's like went in and like, Actually, why do they call it blue ocean? Like there's no wars yet in that ocean. So it's not like red. It's not bloody, I think. Yeah, Yeah, it's not bloody. So there's like no competition yet. It's a brand new space. And it's like huge opportunity. That's very obvious. Whereas a red ocean strategy is like tons of competitors, lots of like battles already fought in that ocean. And people are just fighting to get their little piece of it. Mm. And what we're talking about today is most companies are playing in a red ocean. There isn't really much blue ocean available so knowing that there are those guardrails like how do you get how like what's the strategy when you're in a red ocean right i I think this started as a market category kind of thing but we're talking about it in regards to seo but i think the theory or my theory is that like there's very few blue oceans in general like categorically speaking um and the way you create blue oceans is either through differentiation So like Drift comes out with conversational marketing and and they're still selling live chat and chatbot software, but they created a new term for it. HubSpot created inbound marketing, which was basically social media and blogging. And they kind of wrapped that all up. But those weren't new products. And then I think there's very few actually new innovative products. And those are, of course, Blue Oceans. Those may be things, I don't know if this is actually a new thing, but it's definitely a rising thing. But like climate tech software, that seems like a relatively actually Blue Ocean because it's not something that, at least to my mind, existed about 10, 20 years ago. Looking at this through the lens of SEO is really interesting to me because I feel like you could be working with a red ocean industry. So there's competition at like the go-to-market space, but as it trickles down to like the search behavior it's still a blue ocean because the language hasn't yet been adopted and the con like the word usage and how people search for things that's still very much a blue ocean space so for example we worked with a, a tool called endear 
few years ago, they had many competitors, but they were indexing on the term clienteling, which in, in the search, like Google space, people didn't know what they didn't know in terms of like how to look for the solution. So the industry was Red Ocean as it's defined here, but the, the SEO strategy, we were definitely working in kind of a bluish ocean space. So it's interesting looking at this, like dialing down to that, to the topic of SEO, because it also plays on like how people use language and how people search for things and all that stuff. There, there's also, and this is my favorite and it's the most rare. This is what affiliate marketers look for. This is their whole, like real estate is all about location, location, location. And affiliate marketers are like, can I find a red ocean category mm-hmm. with blue ocean competition? So it's like mm-hmm. um, that cannabis company that I was working with. Yeah. Tons of cannabis, cannabis companies. There's tons of established players, but nobody was writing content. Nobody knew how to do SEO. Mm-hmm. So it's like in MarTech, we're so used to like everybody copying HubSpot's playbook, everybody knowing how to use Ahrefs and even to an extent ClearScope and stuff like that. So the competition is really high and the products are all somewhat similar. So that's like Red Ocean category and Red, o- Red Ocean SEO. But there's some spaces, and again, they're super rare. And if you find one, you, you just got to start printing out content. Mm-hmm. But nobody's writing. So you can have a domain rating of like 10, 20, 30, and still rank for all these really competitive high intent keywords. Yeah. yeah it sounds like there's a, I'm hearing a few axes here, and I'm just going to think all out. There's one, when you look at the industry, is it a red or blue ocean? Like live chat software is clearly a red ocean. And then the second axis is, is there an opportunity to create a blue ocean in terms of differentiation and positioning, which is what drifted, which just becomes like a product marketing exercise, yeah. not just, but that's really difficult. And a third one is like, if you're in a red ocean, are there like channels or strategies that are blue ocean that maybe are more difficult mm-hmm. that people aren't trying to do? So it's, it, yeah. to me, I'm seeing those three buckets. And I think a lot of our clients, they end up actually in a red ocean uh, industry uh they don't yet have great positioning and they need to figure that out and their goal is like what what blue ocean can we find in terms of content strategy that our our competitors aren't doing i think that's one thing that we hope to accomplish during the strategy month is finding that uh, i call it like a strategic edge Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily as strong as creating a new category or some sort of a blue ocean motion with their blue ocean motion <laughs> <laughs> with their uh, <laughs> their language and verbiage. But uh, we do try to lean on something because I-, I don't know. Is there ever a case that if you're in a red ocean that you also you just want to compete head to head in that red ocean? The only case I could see being made for that is if you have a bigger budget and um I, you just have to have a bigger budget. Like if you went up against HubSpot or Sprout Social or something like that, like, and you tried to basically steal all the same keywords that they were going for, like, I don't know, they've got a head start on you. Their website's stronger. Um, they have a higher domain rating and they have more uh, just, you know, processes ironed out. They're going to just drive past you. So I, I, I think the only way you would want to compete head to head is if you had more money to spend. I don't know. I think it I think it depends. I think there's I think the question comes down to the order that you tackle these things in, but I do think there's value to competing head to head for particularly high volume keywords. I think there's also the element of expectation setting. So depending on, you know, how you deliver the content and how competitive you know, from first glance from the search engine results page, how competitive your result can be. Um, But at the same time, getting that 
like SERP real estate, I think there's still value to that. I think there's still like getting in front of your potential customers. So for example, like we're working with a client and we're starting to pursue higher volume keywords with the understanding that they might not get top of page one immediately it will take time and if it does take more time we might have to do a few more optimizations like there's just expectation setting within that but i still think there's value because sometimes especially with those high volume keywords or super super red ocean spaces the value of the serps is also like this billboard effect where you just continue to get in front of your readers what is it eight ten twelve times until you like build that memory it's kind of the same as driving to work and seeing multiple billboards on the way might not convert in the first five or six like clicks but then it becomes like a commonplace like brand name or something that you like connect to that brand like oh i've seen them when i've been searching for this type of word not the same type of goals we set in terms of like conversions and click-throughs and all of that stuff but there is i think still value to pursuing those going head to head depending on industry depending on budget all that stuff yeah it feels like there's a case to be made for that at least at a point in somebody's like trajectory um i would maybe say if you're earlier stage and going head to head against marketo and you're trying to yeah. rank for marketing automation um Timing you matters. should probably index on more yeah. direct response stuff just like if you're a startup and you're buying billboards you're probably going to mm -hmm. go out of business yeah, definitely timing, maturity. That's why I said budget. And there's also a sense of like how much effort and like time can you put into this type of content? Because it's not a one and done. This is not a one way street. So it's a matter of like content maintenance, maintaining hygiene. Um, if you're going to be writing these large posts competing for five figure search volumes, like you have to keep your eye on it. And it's kind of this ongoing project. You can't just post and pray. Mm -hmm. so. I think that can yeah. kind of sway you in different directions too. Um, if you over, if, if a lot of your traffic is reliant on one or two head keywords that you rank for, there's volatility in those SERPs and like yeah. often content and SEO teams are gold on traffic. Right. Um, with the guardrails that you should have relevant traffic, but you know, you're really gold on traffic. So you drop for that ranking, all of a sudden you've got 30% less traffic quarter over quarter. And now you're incentivized to go after more of those billboard keywords when you could have actually been pinning down 50, 20. Yeah. 200 search volume terms that actually drive conversions. So I think it can be um, a challenge with regards to how you use data in retrospect, because you want that chart to go up and, and to the right. right. And if you maybe hit some of those keywords too early without the understanding that you should also like, you know, lay out a, a basket, a portfolio of content, I think you can, you can get, you can fight battles that aren't going to win the war essentially. Yeah. I think if I were to think about how we approach building a strategy for clients is sort of like, hey, we always ask, what are the three to five topics you want your company or brand to be known for? And typically those end up being head terms like, oh, we want to be known for e-commerce marketing or something, something that they would be competing with Shopify or HubSpot or some other big company on. And we're like, okay, great. That's helpful. We can probably try to create some content and start ranking for those things. Probably not going to rank anytime soon, but we use that as a seed to find yeah, I guess what we're we're referring to like blue ocean opportunities where it's maybe lower search volume, lower keyword difficulty, higher conversion potential that people just aren't looking at yet. And we're like, whoa, this is actually a really good opportunity. And we expectation set like probably not going to get a ton of traffic, but it's going to be the traffic you want reading your stuff that these other companies aren't, haven't even written anything about or are just writing shitty content about. Um, and then for the head keywords that they want to go after, like let's say it's e-commerce marketing. It might be like, hey, this is this is going to take a long time to rank 
And also, this is probably not going to be very qualified traffic, like what you both are saying and just setting the expectation so that it's kind of going to building out that portfolio you're talking about, Alex, where those are sort of bets. Like we probably won't rank number one for those very competitive keywords. We can get you to like position nine or 10, but then these other keywords like that make up the bulk of the portfolio are going to be not sure bets, but you're going to have an easier time ranking and getting that traffic to your website. So yeah, we're we're getting into um, strategies for Red Ocean SEO, and I think this is maybe the bulk of the conversation because again, we've dealt with mostly companies in Red Oceans for our clients, and I think in our past we've mostly worked at companies who are in Red Ocean, sometimes the top of the Red Ocean. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I think like one thing to note is if you're in a Red Ocean and you have less uh, uh, longevity of doing content, or your website's not as strong, you have less budget then doing the easy thing is the worst idea. So it, it, it basically, if you could replicate this and, and somebody else could do this easily, it's probably not going to win for you. So everybody has access to Ahrefs or SEMrush um, to a certain extent, ClearScope. If, if you're in content and, and you don't know about kind of content optimization tools, like that's crazy at this point. So these tools are table stakes. Um, and then this is where... So the concept of Red Ocean SEO, I, I got it from Eli Schwartz's book on product-led SEO. And he gives a couple prescriptions for basically finding keywords that may not have search volume yet or are underrated or, you know, they don't show up in in Ahrefs or SEMrush, which those tools aren't completely accurate. So one one way that he does that, we talked a little bit bit about the land and expand technique, where we take a head keyword concept and sort of find the related long tail terms that may not have a ton of search volume that people may not be going after. And that's kind of the Walmart strategy, uh, which I'll explain in a second. But the, the pain point analysis, I think that's where he, he comes from. Uh, so this quote in his book, I'll, I'll read it here. It's like, in this model, successful SEO begins with customer interviews and whiteboards, not on a spreadsheet with search volume and click curves. So if your research does not find search volume for, for a particular category, this should not deter you, but should rather excite your senses. This means that there's an opportunity to create demand for something in search, provided, of course, there's product market fit and an opportunity for you to be able to dom- dominate the category. I could see that. I mean, that's if you're writing about pain points, we, we did that at CXL. Eventually, if you have an audience, it picks up steam. But I also see like a problem in that paragraph, which is like, how do you actually pick up the traction to create and dominate that category in the first place? Sort of a chicken and egg mm-hmm. problem, right? This is fascinating to me because it's not only directly more so directly related to the product and the goal of converting readers than than other top of funnel or middle of funnel keywords would be but to me content driven by pain point seo or low volume seo or both to me it's immediately useful elsewhere as well so like the repurposing aspect of like sales enablement customer support social media i mean even just the process of repurposing for other platforms but i'm meaning like using it across teams using it in many different ways that to me feels like it's worth it even if it doesn't perform well on search immediately especially for a small team lean resources this would be like a reason to start or at least have this be an early component of your seo strategy um and i do i always like to challenge the notion of like high volume, <laughs> that being like the pure leading indicator of what to start with. Um, so yeah, I like this idea and I think there's power to it even if the search volume is under 50, under 100. 
I love low search volume stuff. I think going after high search volume stuff is the worst idea for most companies. I think Especially it's like the biggest ones. mistake of almost every content program. Yeah. It's like delusional ambition and uh, an unrealistic expectation as to like how they're actually going to succeed using well, the same playbook that somebody used 10 years ago. Not only are those kind of tools just like notoriously inaccurate, which I know you mentioned in, in your blog post, but you, if you think about the search psychology, no one's going to fucking convert from those kind of phrases. So besides like cornering the SERPs and having a piece of content on e-commerce marketing or marketing automation, like, sure, you want to have something on that to put on your site, right? Like to maybe snag some traffic, you want to be able to link to it elsewhere, just be able to show that you know what you're talking about in your space, but to use it as a method of conversion, you've got to know there's little to know, like, again, expectation setting, right? Like there's other value to that. And so when we talk about like driving conversions, driving revenue from content, this this way, like pain point led or product led or whatever you want to call it seems to be a better bet. How do we find those keywords? Um, your point on the sales team stuff is interesting because that makes me think you just walk over to the sales team and say, hey, what content do you wish you had when you're talking yeah. to a prospect? And then you create that and you can repurpose it for other platforms. But that seems like, one, that's an obvious utility. Two, it's coming directly from the most proximate point of, of the actual sale. It's like, those are the pain points that are most critical to getting that person to purchase. So it's like, that seems like the obvious choice to me, especially if you're early stage and especially if you're sales led, which sales team, most companies customer support, sales, sales team, customer support, customer conversations. We also ask our, our customers, our clients when onboarding, what phrases have you heard customers or prospects use to describe your tool because if they're using it and you never heard of it they're probably searching for it and you don't have any content on it so almost letting like the folks who are front and center with your tool whether from your side so sales customer support or the customer side letting them dictate like the verbiage that goes into it um whether or not it has volume you know you can't let ahrefs be your validator you know if you're getting it from the source i'd say that's almost a stronger um validation tool than than some arbitrary search volume tool and the good thing is if you start to use it elsewhere you'll almost train up your customers and prospects to start using that language probably similar to how drift did um and then you bam have a high volume term that you already have content on what's a situation where there? uh i was going to take it in a different direction because like now i think the red ocean seems a bit more straightforward versus blue ocean where when I think of Blue Ocean, it's like the market isn't really educated yet. Yeah. And because there aren't a lot of competitors, it's hard to look like to your left and right and be informed by what competitors are doing. So in that case, I think I saw an article from, was it Grow and Convert? Like content strategy if you have an innovative product mm -hmm. or something, like mm -hmm. where there isn't a, ca a clear category yet. Yeah. So what do you do in that scenario? Yeah. Um, I think one thing I would I would consider is like, you're probably not as different as you think you are. And there's probably a, an existing category that you almost fit into. Do you remember uh, years ago when like web, I think it was Webflow that coined maybe, or at least led the term no code, no code revolution, no code platform and all that stuff. Now there's a whole category of no code tools. Yeah. Um, but they're a CMS. And a CMS is as established of a category as you can get online. So I think you can maybe do some of these tactics to piggyback on that. One of which is the surround sound strategy, uh, because then you don't necessarily need to compete with your website to get ranked out 
you know, ahead of HubSpot and, and ahead of Sitecore and all these other kind of juggernauts. But you can actually leverage properties that you have. Maybe you have a podcast, maybe you have an affiliate program to get on lists and review sites that are already ranking for that category. And then just within that copy, note your differentiation. Note that you're for people who aren't as technical, who can't code and want to still build and maintain a website. That's a, I mean, there's, you could definitely piggyback on a category in, in almost every case, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first mover advantage is a little tough with SEO, but the beauty of that is there's other distribution channels that don't require people to know what they're searching for, getting in front of them, you know, whether you do invest in paid channels or something more traditional like PR, community building, like partnerships, events. Um, it's easier than ever now to get in front of folks and tell them things that they don't know yet uh, and hopefully build up the traction on on the search engines and get people to start searching for words that you've already kind of cornered the market on, but it just takes a lot more work. There's education alongside the, the selling, you know, <laughs> teaching people how to talk about it and what words to use. I think you become uh, an evangelist of sorts of your idea. Yeah. And I think one of the best ways to do it is just to speak at conferences. Like yeah. most of the influencer or a lot of influencers are in the room. A lot of people who run blogs, a lot of people who are potential customers and if you come up with a topic, say product-led content, barbell strategy, any of these terms that we've tried to coin, if you do a talk in front of 500 to 5,000 people, it may not be the uh, equivalent of like 5,000 search volume, but those people in the room are usually pretty powerful and influential yeah. and they spread that message. Then you do a webinar, then you do a podcast, you write a blog post that people can reference and you start to build out all of your materials around that one kind of central concept. And mm -hmm. I think that's the playbook. You become an evangelist for the idea. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Like I, I just had a call with, it was a prospector way too early for us to work with. And I just said that, right. And I just said, Hey, look, don't work with us for content production, find a great freelancer that has like a journalism background who can interview and pull out your hot takes and opinions, get them published on, I don't know, fast company or whatever, like that your audience reads and just get your opinions out there. Like get on podcasts, like don't even try to start your own podcast yet. Just get on other podcasts and get in front of the right people. And then people will start hearing it and mm -hmm. essentially parroting what you're saying. And mm -hmm. he was like, oh, I didn't expect that recommendation. I'm like, yeah, you, you have your website's new. You have a 10 domain rating. You're not going to rank for anything. Organic traffic, even if you start it now, is not going to come for like a year or two. Yeah. Who is even influential anymore? Like when you're thinking about like borrowing somebody's platform, I feel like things have have decentralized to this crazy extent where like you said Fast Company, and I'm sure some people still read it and trust it. But like, when's the last time you opened Fast Company, yeah. you know, on your browser, like Inc. or something like that? Forbes is a, a shit show. It's basically shit just show. like a, a scam. You know, it's a bunch yeah, of I... unpaid writers who are monetizing their content with paid backlinks <laughs> it's yeah i just i don't know where where the influential there's no center maybe now no it's maybe about smaller niches like i feel like communities are, are a place where you can start engaging and answering questions right like if we go into super path and people are asking about content strategy we bang out a little paragraph on the barbell strategy um it's a, a very small thing compared to what used to be like these big publications that you could enter but i feel like there's no center of gravity anymore and i might be wrong about that i mean I think it's a good thing because I mean, the same is happening with like influencers and then micro influencers. And it reminds me, Alex, of like your email newsletter. Like you have maybe a thousand subscribers. Um, 
but your list is very potent. Like you have a lot of engagement. So mm -hmm. like, sure, it's not 200K, but how much engagement does a newsletter with 200K really even get? Like traffic and views and clicks probably looks really good. Um, but casting that net, I don't feel like you catch as much when you go really wide. So having something a little bit more focused and like drilled down, whether it's someone like you with a smaller, that's not, I don't think that's small. I just think it's smaller than normal, but a super engaged audience. Like, I think that's where the value is in terms of getting in front of new people and introducing new concepts, smaller influencers or smaller net, like net newsletters, social channels, communities, even conferences, you know, like the more intimate conferences, pr probably more comes out of that than this like whole like spray all this information out there and hope that some people might get it. And I don't know. I think I like the more concentrated, intimate communities anyway. Um, and I think more people are starting to respond to those because there's just so much information, so much like promotion out there. Um, but that's just you, this where is... I am. Sorry, go Alex. I was just going to say, do you know the, the Walmart strategy that I talked about in the piece? Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll explain the Walmart strategy, but y'all read Ryan Holiday's book, the uh, Trust Me, I'm Lying a while back. <laughs> this is, it's crazy how prescient he was on this stuff because now we, we talk about fake news and we can kind of like sniff it down to the source. But back in the day, he talked about the strategy called trading up the chain. And it was very difficult to get any sort of mention or public relations or, or, coverage in the New York Times. But he discovered that the New York Times would look at smaller blogs or Twitter to get their news sources and to get their sources to cite and all that stuff. And then they would look at even smaller, you know, like micro influencers and like individual Twitter users and like really, really small, like local blogs. So he would pitch stories or even create the story himself. He would like spin up blogs and then he would use that to basically he create a bunch of fake accounts or something and send tips to those larger ones. So that maybe these are like mid-stage or like lower mid-stage blogs. And because there was already a rattling or at least a perceived interest in that story, they would take that on because it's basically, you know, they need a lot of content to fuel their operations. They're running on ad models. They need more content. Something that's salacious and interesting is going to get picked up. So that gets in this mid-tier one. And then it continues trading up the chain till eventually this non-story to something that he created for a client basically becomes something that's mentioned in the New York Times, becomes something that everybody's talking about. But he started out um, with the lowest, lowest barrier to entry on these small kind of micro-influencers, micro-sites that just need content. And I think like if you're starting out and if you're going up against, you know, kind of industry juggernauts, you think your story is really interesting and you think the New York Times should cover you. Uh, but unless you have connections, it's going to be very difficult to do that. So I think going after smaller newsletters is one way that you can proliferate your ideas much easier. Um, a lot of people probably, again, like I have a thousand people, a lot of them are very interesting and write their own blogs. They're going to see that idea there. Maybe they pick it up and then it starts to trade up the chain. And sorry, this is rambling, but the Walmart <laughs> strategy is basically the same concept, but it's applied to search. Um, essentially, I'm just reading from the quote here from it's uh, Made in America by Sam Walton. Mm -hmm. I talked about in, in those days, Kmart wasn't going to towns below 50,000. And even Gibson's, I don't even know what Gibson's is, wouldn't go to towns much smaller than 10,000 or 12,000. We knew our formula was working in even in towns smaller than 5,000 people. And there were plenty of those towns out there for us to expand into. They deliberately took locations that were not huge city centers where there was very low competition and just proliferated. So they were all over these small areas and they built their brand awareness and affinity in those areas. 
So keyword wise, that's basically going after the 50 search volume keywords yep. and writing maybe a hundred pieces on those instead of one gigantic 10,000 word piece going for that 10,000 uh, search volume term that you're probably not even going to rank for anyway. Mm-mm. That's that's the whole concept. And I, I really like that. I think I index on you know, low traffic, high intent, bottom funnel stuff. I think that's a good strategy. What this is taking my mind is it's going to go beyond just content and SEO, but just blue ocean go to market. I think we sort of have an idea of what it's looking like right now. And by go to market, I just mean broad, like how do you get in front of your audience? And you both mentioned like communities, small newsletters, micro influencers, like smaller podcasts where people might be trying to get on like featured by New York times or get on the larger newsletters and sponsor those expensive ones. But what about the smaller ones? Or what about the effort it takes to build out a community? Like Alex, you were saying, if it's if it's easy, if it's low-hanging fruit, everyone's probably trying to do it already. Yeah. The fact that not everyone has a community or a great community yet probably means it's probably worth building. It's just going to be much harder. But if you, if you get it right, it's going to work really well. And I, I know a couple examples of that. And then like small newsletters, I think we were talking about this maybe a week ago. Like, are there small newsletters where they don't have sponsors and if we just said, Hey, can we sponsor your newsletter? They'd be like, yeah, I'm down. Like yeah. people love my newsletter. Like I, I love you guys. Let's, let's do something together. We're probably going to get more engagement than a big newsletter too. So I'm, I'm thinking more about just for like clients or even other B2B SaaS companies who want to get in front of the target audience. Sure. There's paid ads, sure. There's content, but what are the go-to markets that we're starting to see or like earlier on in a maturity curve that they could be tapping into now. I think something that I'm reading between the lines on too, is that like sometimes the most valued real estate is actually worth fuck all, right? Like I don't think being on CNN nowadays is going to make a dent in your business. And I actually don't think (laughs) the New York times is only going to do your business damage. Like if they write a teardown (laughs) on your business, they might might tank your reputation, but in no way are they going to help you out. So I think these places have, um, brand equity built up, like people perceive them as important, but I actually don't think they're impactful. So it's trying to find that delta. Um, it's trying to find that gap where like there's something that's underrated in the the minds of people where maybe like they don't perceive it as being as important, thus there's less competition. But you kind of see some potential there. And I think those places are easier to get access into. But also you'd be surprised that like the impact is usually larger, even with a smaller audience and like less brand equity. Yeah, I can see this sort of argument where let's say we were working in-house and then like the CMO or something is like, oh, we got to get featured on this podcast or this newsletter or whatever. And an individual contributor, like a couple of ranks down is like, why the fuck would you do that? Like, there's this, there's this thing I know it could work. Like I'm in a community, like they, they're really high engagement type of folks. Why don't we just try to do this? And the CMO is like, no, that's thinking too small. Like, it's not going to work. It's not going to make an impact. And I'm like, how do you make it? I don't know. How do you make a case or convince those people? It's hard because, like, I think part of it is ego. I think it's something that you can put those logos on your website and you can feel the importance. And maybe there's a case for that too. Like, maybe there is some unconscious perception among your your prospects that oh, they've been featured here and here, and they're in Gartner and like all this stuff. I don't know that that's true, and I feel like those assumptions are almost never tested. 
So maybe experimentation is the answer. <laughs> maybe if you yeah. can convince somebody um, to run like a small experiment where you like maybe do a message test with Winter and like place those logos and then remove the logos and see if there's any difference in qualitative feedback. And if you if you have, I mean, I guess it's not ethical to do so if you haven't been featured, but you could run a landing page test where you like add and remove those logos and show that the difference is, is very small or like not at all. Um, but yeah, I don't yeah, know. I, I think the case is hard. <laughs> I feel like that gets gray hat. Like, hey, let's do an A-B test where one version of the homepage says without being featured yet, but says we're featured on like Forbes and Inc and whatever. And then that ends up winning in terms of conversion. It's like, <laughs> well, do we just leave this or do we go try to get featured now? <laughs> yeah, you just lie. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, That's the secret. I am not advocating for that. <laughs> I would look at it from two different ways. First, I would gather as much data as I could for like, so I'll, when I was at Shopify, I was building like a partnership program out um, just from like a content promotion partnership for a new stream I was working on that didn't have search potential. Uh, the content was not written for search. So when I was looking at different newsletters to partner with, like I pursued the big ones like Retail Brew and all these other ones. And then I went for a few smaller ones too. Um, my my lead didn't really understand why I was doing that. So at first I had gathered like all the data in terms of like subscription numbers, click through all that stuff, just like engagement numbers, like how many responses they got. Like Alex just gets emails like this is awesome. Um, and then I looked at the work involved in all of this. Some of it was able to be duplicated, you know, just across the board doing the same type of content exchanges. Um, but the funny thing is like retail brew sounds really good and it's a big publication little to no engagement mm. uh, so for me i mean i think in my mind if it's a relatively straightforward project do it all you know it's going to be a little bit more manual maybe you can come up with like an automated system or something where you can kind of like i said duplicate your efforts across the board but to me it's about diversification too you know if we want to pull in the barbell strategy like you might as well have some like smaller and then high higher engaged projects, whether they're newsletters or blogs or partners or promotion channels. And then you have a couple that are like, well, these are my big bets and maybe they'll work out. Maybe they won't. Um, that would be my argument is like, why not try everything? Obviously, if there's if it's like a paid project, there's budget involved in all of that. But something a little bit more organic. Um, I don't know. I see the value in trying it. If you if you have that data, that's amazing. But if you don't, one thing that I like doing during uh, I, I constantly like kind of smack talk personas because I think most people do them poorly. But one question that I always indexed on is, um, you know, who influences you? Where do you go to find information about your industry? Where do you go to learn? Um, and I often find that like the there's some common voices you hear. Like if you ask a bunch of marketers who they follow, you'll probably hear Rand Fishkin. You'll probably hear Neil Patel. But there's often smaller names that I am surprised to hear that I haven't heard of. And sometimes they get repeated. And then I'm like, oh, okay, this is an interesting person to look into, or this is an interesting publication. And I think you have to be careful there to like, in, you have to interview like an actually representative audience. Because I have found on Twitter, you know, I've seen a lot of these threads where people are talking about like, hey, what newsletters do you subscribe to? And a lot of them are small individual people. Like they're not like huge brands. They're not like, what was retail brew or like, uh, I don't even know the big newsletters anymore. They're not like marketing week and Forbes, but that's a bunch of nerds on Twitter. Right. Like, and I include myself among them. I may not be representative. If, if you're marketing to CMOs, maybe they do read Forbes still. So I, I, I don't know. I think that's something that you should conduct during 
persona research because it's actually actionable unlike their favorite color or the car they drive yeah i feel like this is getting a little ranty but i've been observing a lot of the way people create and publish content and i've been thinking a lot more about how folks are so like they index so heavily on consistency that they kind of let quality drop um and this doesn't apply to everybody and it doesn't apply to like every format or medium but i feel like the larger or more popular something might get newsletter let's say hey we're gonna bump it to weekly how much time and energy can you really put into a weekly newsletter um you know depending on there's so many contingencies and maybe i'm just getting a little bit too ranty but that's probably why the engagement and like the uniqueness of that starts to drop off over time and why people like prefer smaller more intimate more thoughtful weirder more unique like they cut these people color outside the lines like the people who just kind of do their own thing and they don't look like anything else and they don't really care um I haven't, this is not a fully formed thought, but I, as I've been looking into like larger publications, larger newsletters, and they might sound good, look good, great logo, great, like people that run them. Um, but they, the power, they just don't have as much power over time. Um, and I'd be curious to dig more into that and why folks prefer like the smaller newsletters, smaller blogs, you know, because anytime I see a name, I don't know, I'm like, who the fuck is this? I want to follow them now because like mm-hmm. they're smaller and you know that they probably have a smaller audience and they don't really care as much about like following the rules and they're just like doing their own thing and sharing their own thoughts. Um, I think two things are at play there. I think, um, and they're, they're synergistic. I think first off, like if, if you're small, you're usually capturing a bunch of early adopters and early adopters tend to be hardcore nerds who really are passionate about what they are into. Yeah. And I think as you expand an audience, you naturally have to go up layers every time where people are less passionate, more introductory, more beginners, and your audience size grows, but you don't necessarily have the same level of commitment and passion among the crowd. And then I think simultaneously, as you grow among that curve, you start to be more data-driven. You start to basically experience uh, audience capture. Um, which is what happens when thought leaders uh, become popular and their audience sways them in a certain direction. So you see this with like, you know, the intellectual dark web, you know, like the, uh, it's it's a bunch of goofballs that like are always contrarian about everything, (laughs) but essentially some of that, like Sam Harris was kind of roped into that. I I think Sam Harris is just like pure, you know, like he, he says what he's doing, doesn't really fall prey probably to audience capture, but some of them, once they realized their audiences liked certain positions, they would completely change their like political beliefs to be the complete opposite of what they believed before. And it's like, because they're podcasters, you could watch this happen in public. And you're like, (laughs) it was so clear what they were doing. And I I think that's an extreme cringy example of of adult men falling prey to audience capture. But I do think like, as you scale a brand, the same thing happens where you're like, all right, we've got more cooks in the kitchen. We've got to be safer with what we say. We can't be as weird. The ideas aren't going to be as left field. And I think you start like to think that. like, what does my audience want? And, and you're playing to, again, that audience of more beginners, less passionate, yeah. less weirdos. So you end up a little bit more homo- homogenized. And um, I guess if that's something like a that self-fulfilling want, cycle, I guess if that's something that you want, like obviously people want readership, they want an audience. Um it bums me out because I've seen a lot of folks I follow over time just become super watered down. 
And, uh, you know, maybe they're changing their tune to, like you said, cater to more beginners or more of an educational approach, but uh, I hope that's not everybody's goal. <laughs> we got way off topic. Yeah. So, it, well, <laughs> what we talked about was basically like what happens as you grow. So you you start out in a blue ocean. Uh, you're, you're the weirdo. You attract a crowd of like-minded individuals and you grow to something that is less resembling that. But have you, have you built a moat? Is there any way to build a moat? if you start out in a blue ocean or is every ocean eventually going to become red and you're going to be swimming among the sharks? <laughs> I think there circle is. Back. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think you can build a moat with owned audiences and I think SEO is a great way to build compounding traffic. Obviously it's not foolproof. Like people can come in and spend more money and like attack you on certain keywords and take those positions. But I think overall, the more you invest in, in SEO, um, it becomes marginally cheaper to do so over time. So you can pour more and more money back into it. And that's kind of a flywheel. Same thing with email, same thing with community. The more people who are on your list, the more people are who are in your community, the more valuable it becomes and the less likely it is somebody else is going to be able to compete with that. But that's my take. I think you can build moats and content is probably one of the best channels to, to, to build a moat with. I agree Deuces. on the own, the own audience perspective. All right. That's like no one disagrees. All right. <laughs> What you have said is objectively true and infallible. <laughs> Thank you. Infallibility is one of my core strengths. Did we talk about uh, one question I had on here was if you should always opt to create blue ocean strategies? I mean, I think we, we try to do that. We're, we're in a red ocean. There's a lot of content marketing agencies. I would say it seems like there's a lot. I, just I, think, I think the answer is yes. I mean, it's just a matter of finding where that blue ocean is. Like, if it's not an industry, if the industry is a red ocean, then maybe you have an opportunity for like a different type of go to market where it's blue ocean and there aren't as many players. Or maybe there's an opportunity looking at SEO, like within each different strategy, there might be a blue ocean approach uh, where you can do something different from what your competitors are doing. And mm -hmm. for us, what we typically do is we we do find those opportunities in the content and SEO space where it's like, yep, here's a clear opportunity. Um, maybe it's not as big as we'd like for it to be because there's so many competitors, but it's going to be kind of the tip of the spear to help you grab the audience that is going to be more likely to convert and use a product versus trying to go with, you know, with broad brush strokes, trying to grab all the high volume search keywords that are already taken. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that I spend almost all of my time thinking about how we can do things that other people can't or won't basically differentiation on like a product or service level. And then how we communicate that differentiation. I think most of my time is spent on those two problems and it comes down to what we had talked about before with like it's not, you don't have to ignore that. I think you should do the easy stuff. It should just be table stakes. It shouldn't be like what you hinge your strategic edge on. So I end up writing down a list of like hard things to do, differentiators, moats that you can build. And you can't do all of them, but I feel like if you can pick one or two at a time, carve those out, communicate that in a specific way. Um, and, and this, you know, you can differentiate by via the channels that you operate within. So instead of doing maybe search marketing, um, search engine optimization content, we opted for the podcast pretty early uh, because we realized that that was a way that we could learn about our industry. We could talk to smart people who are doing interesting things that can in tandem build an audience of people. And we can borrow people's audiences, essentially people who come on our podcast, they're going to share it. 
we can sort of leverage their audience and build an audience over time. And then also we can get people on who are in our target market. Like we can learn about them and their company. So it was, it was sort of a, a win, win, win. Um, and we give value to that person as well. Obviously like they come on and get a, a nice platform and do a long form discussion. So it's like, they're, they're not pressured to give smart answers in like 15 minutes, which I, I by the way, I'm doing a, po- a podcast next week it is cut off topic, but it's one of those where I had to write all of my talking points down before. And it's like a 30 minute time slot and 20 minutes of conversation. I'm like, Oh, this is awful. What an awful experience. <laughs> so I won't say the podcast. But, uh. I had an idea to riff off your last idea, but I, Oh yeah. I think we also made a strategic bet. Like we kind of found blue ocean for ourselves too, where we were like, what are agents, what are other marketing agencies writing about? And they're writing stuff like what is content marketing and stuff like that. And we are like, do we want to write that? Like who, who are we trying to sell to who would want to work with us? Like we're not trying to target a beginner to content marketing. We're targeting, we want to speak to VPs and directors or like CMOs who mm-hmm. know what content and SEO are and like no strategies, but want a part a thought partner who can help them build a better strategy and so we opted for not doing a one-on-one tactical stuff and more for the high level strategic content which comes out in our blog content which we started producing earlier on and it comes out in a podcast like i don't think we've done a podcast about how to do keyword research like we're Mm -hmm. talking about red ocean seo strategy yeah something when reading some of like the prep questions thinking about how we've created a blue ocean for the agency like the way i look at our business is we are the product us and our team um, especially the three of us and it's been really cool to index on the things that make us different you know because when you think about it not to get too like i don't know whatever like we are all blue oceans like in in ourselves like we all have things that make up like that are unique to us (laughs) um and it's been cool to just focus on that and not think about like how can we be like everybody else and then beat them, you know, like we can beat other people without having to emulate them, not beat them, but we can talk about how we might be better. And I think zooming out, that's why content marketing is a very powerful moat for Red Oceans because it allows companies, whether they're like product or services to leverage what makes the team and the people behind the product unique. Um, If that guides your content marketing strategy, there's ways to still like rank for content, but have that content, whether it's thought leadership, hybrid content, all the different things that we talk about on our podcast. Um, I feel like it's one way to set yourself apart in a pretty like busy space. So not necessarily like compete and win, but just differentiate in general, um, just through different personalities and thought processes, experiences, all that stuff. That's probably why the podcast has been so successful because it's just us like being ourselves and not having to be like everybody else, which it's exhausting, you know, especially on social and everything and yeah, whole other conversation. I love that. Everyone's a blue ocean of one. Uh, it's, it's a little cheesy. It's so cheesy. I will not become a red ocean. I that reminds me. Blue. I mean, a lot of people do become red oceans though. Uh, David, you and I have talked about this back, uh, you know, when we were influenced by peers around us to do certain things that aren't actually mm-hmm. authentically ourselves, thinking about going to business school, thinking about doing this, laddering up the career ladder. It's like all of these things that like, when you question it, you're like, did I ever want this for myself? And if not, why the fuck am I going for it? Like, why, right. why is this my new goal? And it's because you're influenced by others around you. And I think that mimicry is, is a very human thing. But if you can avoid that, like, that's a huge strength, a huge strength. Yeah. That's like a thing applies. Like, sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say Naval talked about that, about like how you can compete on authenticity and escape competition just by realizing that no one can compete with you being you. Well, you're like really hard to find that voice. But like when you find yeah. it, like there's nobody else that can really do that thing. And I think like just a quick note on like larger strategies and marketing tactics and all that stuff like you can still follow proven tactics and proven best practices but do it in your own way like there's so much mimicry out there like down to the literal title of a blog post which alex i know you just dealt with that it's just like why don't you just make your own stuff within the bounds of what works like generally what works you know and that's where i think we'll save this for another conversation <laughs> That's why there's a million SaaS companies yeah. with the same design, the same taglines, yeah. the same products. And they're they're doing webinars, yes. but they're like no different than anybody else's. And it's like, how are you going to beat the person who just outraised you by double? You know, the person who's been around for like 10 years longer than you. It's like, there's no yeah. feasible way that you can win using the same approach, the checkbox, best practices. Best practices are fine. They're like a starting point, right? But like, yeah. uh, so like back when I was at CXL, I, I haven't talked about this framework in a long time. It's kind of a stupid framework, really. It's it's not catchy at all. But uh, we were doing webinars uh, for CXL Institute because um, we realized, you know, we're doing education, we're selling education. Webinars are a form; it's a bite-sized education, and we can just get the instructors to do a webinar. But I thought um, I hate webinars, most of them. <laughs> so I reframed it, reverse engineered, and thought, what would a webinar look like if it didn't suck? And I started thinking about all the things that are horrible about webinars, like. The long, drawn-out introductions. You know, it's 10 minutes of like small banter and like, oh, hey, tell me about yourself. And like, it's like, ah, I don't care. I already read the landing page. I know who the person is. That's why I signed up. Just get into it. The sales pitches at the end, all of the slides, the theory, telling me the benefits of what I'm going to learn. It's like, no, just get to the thing. So I got the instructors to just like do a screen share. And I basically didn't give any introduction and they went really well. So it's like, we still did a best practice, which is like doing webinars. That's a channel that everybody do, does, right. but we did it in our unique way. And I thought, you know, that aligned with the CXL brand of like no fluff, no BS. And it was fun. It worked. Yeah. So I think like to wrap it up, maybe like Red Ocean one, it's, it's ill-defined. I think, um, you know, you could describe most things as a Red Ocean. Um, there's very few true Blue Ocean products. There's a couple blue ocean different uh, positioning uh, messaging, basically like within red oceans. I think that's really hard to do. I think people talk a lot about that, but I think the successes are, are sort of the exceptions, the hub spots and the, the drifts oh, yeah. and stuff. Um, but there's always a unique strength advantage or edge that you can exploit. Maybe not always, you know, like there's probably some situations that are just doomed. Then you should just go, you know, work at, Facebook or something. <laughs> but your job as a strategist is to find that edge. And sometimes that's through experimentation. Sometimes you've got a hypothesis and a bet that you just want to see to the end. But I think it's really about finding that unique way that you specifically can win, which is what we always talk about in our content strategy stuff. So.